Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Don't Call Me Buddy. I am joined with my co-host Nick, as always. Nick, how are you doing this week? Doing fantastic, Steve. I can't wait to bring myself down intellectually to your level and see the world through your eyes. You know, you made a comment to me a little while ago about how you're such a fan of chess, and yet you combined it, de- described it as a simple game for very dumb people. I'm Something a dumb along person. Those lines. I enjoy it. I don't know. The horse goes a little in little L's. It's not as complicated as Wordle. That game, it's too much for my brain to comprehend. Five letters, way too many. If I it mean, was for three, some, I would give it a shot. I mean, for someone who works with communicate, who, who writes all day, the fact that you're beaten down by Boggle or Wordle, excuse me, what's <laughs> <laughs> not named Boggle? Again, like I said, a pleasure to bring myself down to your level. So, Steve, what's <laughs> what's on your mind today? Well, it's going to be a topic uh, a little bit more complex than chess, Nick. So, let's see how you do this go around. This week's question is: Will we ever see a major war involving first world countries again? Gonna pose that one out there to to you, Nick, to to the listeners. Well, what do you? Well, first, what do you mean by first world countries? So I'm talking about the West and Asia, and you know if we're gonna include Russia in between those two. So really, that core part of the world. All right. So you literally just said the first world, the second world, and the third world are all part of the first world, which makes no sense. I think commonly right, right, the first right. world is defined as pretty much anyone who is over in NATO. Uh, back during the Cold War. So it's the United States, Canada, the UK, France, Germany. You kind of go down the line, you know, include Australia too. Why not? And maybe South Africa makes the list. I I would say they should be cut now at this point. But, you know, people can contend that. But I I think that's where we should start is just first world countries in terms of the West. Are are those countries going to go to war? For example, is France going to go to war over Germany because Germany invents a new type of baguette and says this is German heritage? That could be a thing. Nick, this is ridiculous. (laughs) What are these? All right, you're throwing shit out now. You know where I was getting at. I'm taking a constructivist lens to this, okay? There's more than ideology here. It's also culture, which... Of course, of course. There's stuff with food here. Okay, food is a big thing. You say you invented one type of food. Let's say, you know, Norway says they invented the crepe. There's going to be a nuclear war next week. Well, you know, the cra- I mean, you get Belgium involved in there. You're going to see sides. But all right, all right. You know what? Please, let's, let's start then with, with your definition then of, of the first world countries. We commonly, you know, th- th- this is the West. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so just a quick background. It's, the question is not just the first world countries, but why would any country go to war, right? I think that's something we should ask. Steve, any, any ideas sure, there? We can. Well, <laughs> Why would countries go to war? Steve, tell us. No, well, so I think there's different, there's different, obviously there's going to be different schools of thought here. And I think it's dependent on the age in which we're, we're looking at here. You know, we look at the colonial age, it's all built on imperialism, getting resources, colonizing around the world. And we saw that for around 200 to 300 years, you know, maybe give her a little take on either side there. And then we get into the you know the 20th century, certainly, where imperialism, that colonial, those drivers are not the same anymore. It's a much more complex world coming out of World War II. The world is now suddenly very well defined. You know, we look at Europe, we have the East and the West. Again, it's that Cold War mentality. Russia, you know, a second world country versus the West, the first world countries. And that's really where that distinction came. And there it's more about po- politics and the big man game. And who, in, in this case, democracy versus communism. So very different goals than the colonial era. So different drivers to consider why would countries go to war. Now we're in the 21st century. Who the hell knows, man? We've got shit going on in Ukraine this week. Is there going to be a war? Is Norway going to claim the crepe all of a sudden leading to the third world war? I don't know. You know, the drivers are are mixed because we certainly see elements of not imperialism, but we're trying to hold on to those 
those countries, the, the again, the idea that democracy, it's like we are fighting very hard, and I'm talking about the modern period now, we are fighting very hard in the Cold War. It was democracy versus communism. We won. Communism, really, no longer. You look at China, it's not a communist country. There are elements of it, certainly, but it's you know authoritarian, and it has a very differing approach of governing than I would think Mao would have done. But anyway, not to go down that They would point. say they're communists, but yeah, not to get too into that. No, of course they right would. Yeah. But now that we don't really have that adversary, it's like, what what is the goal? What are we fighting for now these days? Is there a benefits award? You know, the world is so connected with the free market. I mean, it's such a, uh, I mean, the trade trade every year, the stock market. I mean, everything is so connected financially. In this, is it very advantageous in the 21st century to go to the war, knowing the impacts it would have to financial stability? So, Which I think is one of the core tenets of of the democracy that we see around the world, or at least that the U.S. breaches, right? It's that financial security and stability. Yeah, sure. I think you're conflating democracy with economic systems, but happy to get into that later. I think, all right. No, we're I mean, take I, think Western... they go, I think if you look at United States hey, dude, democracy, you just gave it me goes two hand minutes. in hand. You just gave me your two minutes of garbage, okay? Let me give two you at least a of... brief retort. Okay, you're talking about we're more interconnected than ever. We've got these financial institutions. We've got cultural exchange. We've got all this stuff linking us closer and closer together, right? We've got air travel. We've got like basically like people can get from point A to point B faster than any time in human history. You can go online, talk to people in other countries. We're very, very connected, right? Also, there's the SWIFT system financially for uh, those different exchanges as you make a purchase. Um, the same thing was the case. The same conditions were the case in the early 1900s when World War I broke out out of nowhere. All these countries in Western Europe were more connected than they had ever been before. You had rail travel really picking up. You had all these new ships that were faster than ever. Commerce was blazing ahead. People were more interconnected. You had, what was it? The, I don't think it was the telegram at that point. I think we were way past that. But essentially, like yeah. communications through the telephone, whatever, like all this stuff was getting better and better and better. And yet, you know, you wake up the next morning, you know, this Archduke, Fransford, he gets assassinated. Everyone goes to war. And, um, you know, there, there are various different reasons for that. But I'm just saying, like, those preconditions you were saying there, where today it's not this ideological battle, it's not all this other stuff, we're very interconnected, we've got this vibrant trade going on across the world. Those same conditions existed 100 years ago, and there was a world war after it. Yeah, but so they weren't I'm just the, not sure it, wasn't the sa- it wasn't the same setting, though. I mean, think about this today. 100 years ago, if something were to happen, you needed to get all the world leaders there together. How would you do it? We don't have Zoom. There's no way to really do, I don't know, maybe they had like a multi-way phone call. I don't know. They're writing letters. What are they getting on the first boat across the ocean to go talk about? No, it wasn't the same dynamic. Sure, we were a lot more connected. The telegraph, phone, even mail. I mean, all those systems had are within there, were really running hot. But today, something happens. Look, I mean, even the, look at this past week alone with the Ukraine crisis. We've got members of, of the United States government flying to Europe members within Europe traveling all over the place within the same day, coming back home. I mean, it's a different dynamic because we're in the same room now all of a sudden with all of these people at a moment's notice. And I think in a sense, and this is where my hot take is, is that without that boundary of time, say when we get on the boat in the you know 1900s to get to Europe, I don't know how long it would take, maybe a couple of days at this point, you have time to think about and really craft your response. And sure, situations change, with the specifics, but you have time to think. Today, we have to act so quickly. I mean, it goes with anything too, with how we communicate as a whole. We don't give ourselves a lot of time to think today. So I think differing from the 1900s and World War II, it's the same technology, sure, but it's a much different way of interacting with them. Uh, that's I think fair, it's to our I discredit. Say, 
regardless of that communication and diplomacy, for example, so like 1904, 1911, there were some diplomacy spats where um, there were conflicts in Northern Africa and it got resolved each time through diplomacy. Like you were saying, decision makers were there in the room. 1914, First World War, they were also in the room. They were all in Western Europe together. And it's not like, you know, it went from the assassination to war the next day. People had time to travel. People had time to talk it out. It took two months for people to mobilize and actually go to war with each other and all the declarations to go through, whether it was you sure, know, the, yeah. the Soviets or, or, sorry, not the Soviets, it's the Russian Empire, uh, Tsarist Russia at the time, which then quickly collapsed in 1917, uh, or whether it was the Germans, Austria-Hungary, which used to be an empire, now obviously two different countries, um, <laughs> nowhere near its former glory, even though it was fading at that point. <laughs> Bold um, statement. But all right, if anyone listening as from if Austria they all is wanted here, to be, <laughs> as if they don't want to be together you, in the same seen, room, linked together by days. the border. Um, but <laughs> that's my point here: is it didn't happen overnight. It's not like it took people two months to get together in a room. They were there, they were talking, but that decision was made higher up the chain in these national governments. They made the decision as the sovereign state: we will go to war. And there's no amount of diplomacy that would have avoided that at that stage, because they had already made up their minds. They were already going to do it. They were okay. looking for an excuse. They got the excuse, and they used that as a means for war. So is that what's the main difference today, then? Because I feel like today, it's not like the United States. We don't just declare war willy-nilly. It's going in with a coalition, and maybe it's due to NATO, other alliances. Well, but that decision isn't solely on one country now. It's not a unilateral decision. In some cases, part. it is. Look at Russia and Crimea when they annexed it in 2014. You had these protests in the country. And it's not like Russia waited until the protests died down. They said, oh, look, this country is erupting into domestic turmoil. We're going to make our move now and seize Crimea. And they did. And that was a unilateral decision on their end. So Russia right. made that decision. They followed through with it. No one else had to be at the table. They did the same thing in, in Georgia in 2008 with uh, South Ossetia and that region. Right, but they say they don't have the same relationship, say the United States has with Europe, right? Through NATO, I, where we're just able to say, yeah, we're going to go ahead. You know, you protest in Ukraine, let's go and invade, and the United States issues this gallant charge in, and we do that. We don't have the same dynamic. We would never do that in the twenty first century. Russia's th way of operating is fundamentally different due to alliances and just due to their whole political way of approaching situations. It's a very different political game than the United States and Europe. It seems like a losing political game if uh, their GDP is anything to indicate. <laughs> it's been tanking over the past couple of years, ever since they got involved in Crimea. And it was going down 2013 to 2014, year over year. But still, after they got involved in Crimea, got yeah, slapped with all these sanctions, sure. they, their GDP has tanked, and yet they're still making moves. They're still mobilizing troops. It's like they haven't really slowed down in that regard. Yeah. Well, this is something that John Mercer actually really gets into. That, I, that It's the one thing, because you tie it back to the economics. And like I said, for the United States, our brand of democracy, it's about economic uh, you know, stability and opening up the markets, increasing trade, bringing in more money. For Russia, it's a completely different thing. They're not focused with that. As John Merchman said, they're like a very 19th century oriented, oriented political system. And they have different, as country and nation, they have different goals than, say, the United States and NATO has. They're not interested in that economic stability at this point for them it's more about a power game and they want to claim or they see i mean it gets into the whole U situation of ukraine now but for them they're not you know they're not advocating for this this type of economic partnership for them they're willing to take hits economically because it doesn't matter as much to them for us of course if our economy took a big hit due to a, 
a political, uh, you know, political conflict, we would respond with trying to stabilize the situation. Completely different for Russia. That's fair. So I guess then we're getting into honor and all the rest of it. Um, how you end up projecting power? Right. Well, let me. Let it's, me the, it's those cultural norms that you were talking about before too. Yeah. I mean, you so, look at the United States culture. We don't have this European or typical, you know, historical European mindset. We weren't involved for hundreds of years in wars between different countries over power and over geography. For us, I mean, we just took United. I mean, it was pretty easy for us to claim the whole country. Well, like that was never an issue for us. And culturally, sure, we have a lot of different sex and ideologies and, and that make up the United States. It's amazing that we're managed to remain 50 states for this long. But for us, it's a different culture. We don't have those, those same drivers. Well, all right, let me let me take uh, Russia and Ukraine off the table. Let's go back to your original question around, you know, the, the major powers today. And sure, we'll expand it to include China as well. I, I know you're dying to get to that one. Oh, so, there's a lot there. I mean, look, um, you know, Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. Russia's army dwarfs Ukraine's, absolutely. Granted, Ukraine is the size of Texas. It's it's pretty big over there. It's about the same size as Germany or so, I'd say. Um, however, not as secure as other states would be. Um, and I guess as I'm thinking through this, it's this age-old question of what's the likelihood of war between nuclear-armed states, whether that's the United States going to war with Russia directly or the United States going to war with China directly, I don't think we would have any qualms about getting involved in another place like Syria or Yemen or all these other proxy wars where, sure, these great powers are involved, but the superpower, the hegemon, the United States, you know, we kind of get to bully our way through and have our way for the most part. Think of the nine after 9-11, we end up in, ended up invoking NATO Article 5, that a member state had been attacked. All these other states end up mobilizing. And even though right. the Soviet Union had collapsed at that point, and some of the theories out there, for example, balance of power theory, would have stated that all these weaker states would have formed a coalition to gang up on the strong United States to force a redistribution of power. The counterpoint to that would be that the United States has actually gotten more allies since 1991, since the fall of our big enemy, the Soviet Union, and that more countries are actually hopping on board the U.S. bandwagon and that therefore our conflict with them, for example, the conflict between the United States and Great Britain, you could say there's some cultural stuff, some historical stuff, shared language, religion, the rest of it. But fundamentally, these countries are moving closer towards us, not away from us. And in part, it's due to countries like Russia and how they're acting in Ukraine right now, I think. Yeah, that's fair. So it's what? So are you saying that in this circumstance, Russia doesn't look as they're not a role model? They're not someone that the rest of the world should follow? I think that would be a tough sell. Uh, for them to go out and be like, you should model your society based on us. I think that would be a very difficult sell for them to go to, let's say, you know, right. Spain so a, or Portugal so, and be right. like, hey, guys, you've got it all wrong. Or go to Italy and Greece, be like, hey, Greece, you've got this all wrong. Come over to our side. OK, we'll form form so a then, coalition. So then how does a country like Russia then? And, you know, I would assume, you know, let's say is Granted, China, Greece is in NATO and that was garbage. But <laughs> continue. <laughs> no. So would you say that China is in a very similar position? I mean, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, I mean, a lot of those countries within the East Asia group, I would say, if they if there was a war tomorrow, whose side would they take? China, the United States. I think they would still side with us, despite everything that's gone on. I think, you know, overall lack of interaction within, you know, we hear about Europe so much, we don't hear as much about Asia, East Asia relations, especially with our allies there. But I think that they would still pick our side and come come to the fight. Yeah, but for that, I think that's because China hates Japan. <laughs> Japan invaded China for, what was it? 
This was during the 100 years of self, of humiliation that China talks about all the time, where it was the British, right. the French, the Japanese, the United States even got a piece of the pie. Of Germany course. got involved. Um, and Germ- or sorry, Japan, South Korea, and others are definitely more allied with us than they would be with China. However, right, so- in terms of an economic block, they're certainly still forging ahead and forming that partnership. I actually think it just went into effect earlier this year with Australia, China, basically most of Southeast Asia minus India, which you could say it's its own region. But um, I think they ended up pulling out of that deal. But okay, so they are forming out- a larger economic block together. Okay, so well, to zoom out for a second, because okay, so we painted the United States as this country with a lot of allies. You mentioned NATO, specifically Article Five, and and the way that we would then mobilize in a conflict today. We've got Russia, who doesn't have those same coalitions, that same those same alliances. A little bit of a different game. Then we've got China, which is sort of it sounds like it's a mixed bag because, like you mentioned, Japan it doesn't have a lot of allies within the Eastern Asian immediate area. But they're forming economic alliances with Japan, with Australia. I mean, it's obviously mutually beneficial. So that's a that's a key sort of aspect of of the system that the United States has been pushing. It's those partnerships. It's again the economic angle. It's advantageous for us to all get along. And I think this is one of those theories as well, <clears throat> or one of the or kind of one of the key ways of thinking. But it's it's beneficial for us to remain in an alliance economically for security reasons, for stability, than to sort of maintain this rogue angle, similar to what Russia is doing, where they're not buying into that. Yeah, for no fault of their own. I mean, we have a lot to do with why they're not getting, why we're not, we're not opening our arms to Russia. So there's, it's not just solely on us here saying no, 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 or them not wanting to come in. I think, you know, could aspirationally be a little bit more cooperation. there. I suppose so. But I think I want to latch onto what you were saying about economics, because that is a main theory, whether it's Joseph Nye and complex interdependence, or just, you, you want to, just talk about economic interdependence generally and how that ends up influencing war. So do you think that if you were more, if your economy is uh, more in line with, and if you, let's say you have these bilateral agreements, or even if you're part of a larger multilateral um, trade agreement, that if, for example, if the United States and China are these big trading partners, that the likelihood of war is less. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Why? Because it's, it, it, because it's complete, it would sabotage both economies. I don't think either country, for them, economic stability is a fundamental, is a prime goal, and they wouldn't jeopardize that over, you know, diplomacy would come first before it escalated into a full blown physical war. Politically, it would, yeah, and economically to some degree too, with sanctions and everything like we saw with Trump really pushing back on China and trying to foster that that United States state self reliance again. But I don't think it would come to, I think we, our economic interests are still key to us and we wouldn't just go to war over something, you know, without having exhausted all our other options. Well, let's talk about that self-reliance because the current paradigm is that we end up getting these raw materials from countries like China that we then turn into finished goods that we then sell to this wider global market, right? right? So if we stop doing that, if we stop getting the materials from China, I mean, what Trump was saying is that we're becoming too dependent on them. In fact, right. we're generating these risks to ourselves, these security risks to ourselves by being increasingly dependent on China. And therefore, we need to pull away from them because otherwise, you know, they're going to be able to eat our lunch. They're going to be able to b- boss us around, bully us. They're going to have more power right. over us, better uh, terms for them versus what we get out of it. Of so, course. I'm I mean, that's the hegemon. If, they're, they're vying for that title. So, but, but in terms of that, 
I guess the liberal theorists would say that, oh, well, states want to maximize their welfare and they have no interest in starting a war with their trade partners. Whereas the realists, to, to Trump's point, would be, oh, actually, economic independence, it's a weakness. You got to invest more in your military because <laughs> you're not as secure. Um, and then, of right. course, you've you got these other ones. For example, the Marxist view that Stalin kind of espouses, oh, the capitalist countries, they're going to go to war with each other. We can just sit back and you know, let it all happen and then clean up afterwards. And then, of course, he got trounced <laughs> by Germany, at least initially, and then ended up fighting his way back and and they won World War II. But um, I don't know. I, I think trade is definitely an important way of thinking about this. But what about not just trade, but let's go back to uh, some of the more basic. Well, I think theories. just to go back, because you're talking mm-hmm. about that self-reliance and I think it's a balance. It's not like with Trump in that realist way of approaching it and thinking that, if China, if we were to get into, and this comes back to war, for us, at least why it's not very advantageous to engage in war with China. If we were to suddenly have those trade, that fl- that sea of trade cut off immediately, would we be able to survive? No, we wouldn't. So much manufacturing, you know, raw, everything. But again, it's, it's finding a balance there. It's being able to man- manufacture, produce all domestically to some degree, while still, you know, amplifying that with international trade. I think it's just more of a balance. It's the, the way that it is now is it is not a balance. It's it's so much more on China and that reliance there. So I think a little bit of self-reliance and fostering that and building that is good, but you know, I guess that's sort of taking a realist and then the more liberal way of approaching it and finding a finding a balance between the two. So, but do you think that essentially like if let's say we were to do nothing, right? And we just kept the trade as the liberals want us to do, we just kept trading that was all great. We've got this interdependence. Nothing's going to happen. No big deal. I don't think that applies to, for example, I think that would apply to country to country, for example, the United States and China. But when you come to our allies in the region, if that same level of trade isn't being upheld, let's say between China and the island of Taiwan, then which, by the way, regardless of however much trade they have there, they still claim like People's Republic of China their main thing is still Taiwan is a part of China. We're going to take it eventually. Like that is our number one goal. They don't really give a set time period. They're not like, Oh yeah, next November on a cold rainy day, (laughs) we're going to invade. We're going to take it. We're going to get the semiconductors. We're going to get all this stuff. They don't say that. And that's why for years, it's like almost once a year, you have some threat that always trying to go to invade Taiwan. Is this finally it for decades? We've been hearing that. You heard that back in 2014 in Crimea, for example, if you end up reading The Atlantic, The Economist, whatever, they they had some old articles that are like, oh, what if China ends up deciding to invade the same time Russia invades? <laughs> and you can tell from my tone of voice that I, I kind of look down on that view a little bit um, because at the same time, I think that China and Russia have their own land disputes, their own border disputes, and they're both vying for hegemony in the same landmass that is Eurasia. So they're pure competitors in that aspect. But I mean, look, they could form a temporary alliance, I suppose. And then that would, I guess, fulfill the initial balance of power theory, which is that the weaker states, Russia, China, gang up, form this alliance and ally with themselves against the United States to form this redistribution of power so that they can both come out better and weaken oh, yeah. the United States. I mean, I think that's one of the prevailing thoughts today is that is that what the United States through their their international diplomacy like with everything handling Ukraine right now are they pushing Russia and China closer together I mean if you look alone you talk about like let's look at the Europe's reliance on Russian oil and how that's been a big theme because it's been a cold winter we've got even climate change going on impacting 
ways of producing power all over the world, generating, I mean, not so much generating the oil, but for Europe, there's such a reliance on that Russian oil. And that's a huge threat for Russia to use against Europe. So there's th- there's that one aspect. That's sort of the you know diplomatic relationship. You know what's funny, funny about on. that, by the yeah, way? Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead, go, go ahead. No, 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 please, please. What's funny is Germany about 10 years ago was like, oh, well, this isn't really a big deal. We're going to shut down our nuclear plants. We're going to burn more coal and natural gas. Yeah, whatever. We'll get some more for Russia. For example, you already had Nord Stream 1. Now they're going for Nord Stream 2, which is kind of circumventing Ukraine, which is where the other pipeline is coming into Germany from. But they're like, oh, you know what? No big deal if we end up doing that. And then now (laughs) you fast forward and they're like, oh, crap, it was a big deal. Oh, shit. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what was your other point? Well, to the China-Russia relations part, like you talk about the importance of gas within Europe for you know economically for Russia, but then you look about they've got this this potential alliance, you know, partnership to the to the east, and they're selling and they're they've got a pipeline between China. I think recently within the last two years they approved another one to bring mm. gas from Russia to to China. So economically, they're partnering already. China is hungry for gas. Especially They're, Russian gas. Can't get enough oh of it. Oh my God, that's sweet Russian gas. But I mean, I guess to sort of look at it today too, that's almost in a way makes, you know, it, it, the United States' his stance internationally for such a long time now has always been, if there's something that we don't like, again, this is sort of not with that going to war conflict. Like, let's get troops on the ground. It's Let's sanction them economically. Let's punish them so severely economically because that's what their lifeline is. And that's, again, that's that United States, that Western way of thinking today through our partnerships. It's economic security above all else. And we think that that same driver is going to have the same effect as it would on us for us to punish Russia. Because again, if you look at the Ukraine conflict today, the main thing that has come out for the last month or two now is Joe Biden, Washington. It's, oh, if Russia goes into Ukraine, the sanctions are going to be so, you think you've seen bad sanctions, just wait until you see what we do next. I mean, and like Russia still doesn't give a shit. Because again, they don't care economically. Well, we get some sanctions. They'll survive. They've survived the fucking Cold War. I mean, eventually they didn't survive. So maybe it's just a waiting game. But for them, and they've, they, they'll figure they'll survive. They've got this partnership with China to the east. They're trading through there. Economically, there's some security there. So I think it's, and then that just empowers them again to not, they're to go invade Ukraine if they want. What do they care? They know it's so complicated. And I, I don't think the US has had a clear response within the past 20 or so years to how we would handle conflict like that? Well, I mean, sanctions have been effective more than 40% of the time. Uh, That is in this lovely book I'm reading right now, Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower by Michael Beckley, uh, (laughs) published in 2018. And Michael kind of, or Beckley, uh, this professor, kind of runs through different things. And one, one person who he quoted was Paul Kennedy. And I think part of the reason, Steve, why there is this big focus on economics is because both Mr. Beckley in his book and some of the people he quotes, like Paul Kennedy, who's a very famous historian, uh, they look at economics as an incredibly important driver of conflict. For example, to quote from Kennedy, it's, quote, differentials in growth rates and technology change leads to shifts in global economic balances, which in turn gradually impinge on the political and military balances. And the question is, why do some countries at some times grow faster than others? And they get into that a little bit. But one thing that, you know, if we get away from Kennedy, who Beckley really respects, and get to Beckley himself, he looks at a bunch of major conflicts over the past couple hundred years. And he sort of charts out that 
if you try to predict this, for example, there's this academic indicator, CINC, which kind of looks at military, your population, your energy. It takes all these different indicators together, smashes it up, and it's like, all right, what is your mil- what is your power potential right here in the moment? And right now, the CINC lists China as way ahead of the United States. Now, you could look back in time and say that CINC didn't really match up with the outcomes of some of these key conflicts, for example, Japan and China, or, sure. or others, Great Britain and China, um, where right. even like China's GDP has always been more than everyone else's, right? And you could look at some of these other conflicts, like US GDP was more than Afghanistan, but we still ended up losing. Um, and one sure, thing that I yeah. wanted to point out is he, he really gets at economic efficiency and economic well-being of the average citizen as sort of this um, proxy indicator for how well you're going to do in a conflict. And he says that the best fit scenario to predict which country comes out on top is if you take GDP and multiply it by... Um, GDP per capita, which is kind of measuring the efficiency overall per right. person of, of how it's uh, going, and that that's kind of a best fit line. And in that regard, the United States is way ahead of everyone else. We're, even if you look at CINC and military stuff, we're way ahead of everyone else by a large margin. Like the United States literally like crushes everyone. If you add up all these different indicators, we are so freaking far ahead. It's unbelievable. And so to me, the the main question is like, well, What's the risk of that superiority going away over the next couple of decades? Um, because there's, of course, this other theory, convergence theory, that poor countries grow faster than rich countries, and thus these challengers like China will inevitably overtake the reigning hegemon like the United States. Plenty of counterpoints to that, but I guess I just wanted to get that all out of my system here because I've been reading it nonstop for the no, past that was day great. or two. And you look at all these indicators, and for example, like, if you look at, I don't know, Germany and Russia, uh, back when they fought in the late 1800s leading up to World War I, and then into World War II for that matter, but let's just take late 1800s into World War I. Like eight, I think it's like 1891 to 1914 okay. when they were at war. 1917, I suppose. Germany had way less people in the military. It didn't have as much equipment. But what it did have was it was way more efficient. It had better technology. <laughs> it had better training. It had all this stuff that was way better. Plus, its GDP per capita was better. And so the average German soldier actually ended up being way more effective than the average Russian soldier. And they kind of kicked their butts. Uh, <laughs> and they won in several different conflicts. And then, of course, Russia gets trounced by the Japanese over in East Asia in 1905. And this is all ancient history. But all that goes to say that just because you have the larger army, at some point, if China starts to really bypass us technologically, even then, like we're talking about with the economic independence stuff, does that really mean that just because the second China is like, oh, we're better militarily? Like, sure, they can still project their power about you know a couple hundred miles off their coastline right now. But in terms of like a major war between us and China, I don't think that's very feasible. What I do think is feasible is some of these proxy wars whether it's us, China, and some other country, or what we're doing right now with Russia, let's say, in Syria or Yemen, or countries like that, where it's not this, it's not the major powers going head-to-head. Right, right. It's just these proxy wars, which we've seen over time, they get less and less, but they're still an issue. Sure. And I think, well, I think if we look at war within the within the Asian Sea, within the Pacific, it's it's I mean, even during World War II, it was such a challenge for us. I mean, the vast difference. I mean, before, what was it, the Battle of Um Midway Island, which was really the turning point for the the war in the Pacific 
in terms of the in terms of competing navies. I think that's where we really turned the tides and destroyed most of Japan's fleet. So to the point, war within the Pacific with China and the United States. Who the hell knows what that would look like? I don't think. I mean, there's. I read about these war games all the time in the United States. So like, oh, China would kick our butts. They have so many more boats, or they're projected to have so many more boats than us. So I don't know. It would be crazy. But to your point, we see all these proxy wars we have for the last twenty odd years, if not more so now. We're in twenty twenty two. But what's the breaking point there? Because I feel like that's where we're at now with Ukraine. We've got Taiwan as well. Those are two. If we look at both of those situations, Ukraine in Europe and Taiwan in the South China Sea. They're both similar situations in terms of the significance of that state to Russia and China, conversely, or respectively. So what is that? how is that going to play out? I feel like that's the breaking point. Because like you said, these proxy wars have been going down. But so if we're not going to have a large-scale conflict and we're not going to have these proxy wars, what, what, what's that point? I have no idea. Like, for example, Ukraine, you could say the Donbass region and Crimea, um, those are more Eastern-leaning, more, I, I guess, Russian-leaning parts of Ukraine, and they are in the Eastern part of the country. For example, Crimea was given by the Soviet Union over to Ukraine when it was established in the 50s um, as sort of this goodwill thing. Um, and I don't know, Russia was always like, well, that's our only warm water naval port, and sure, they're building others in other parts of the world, but um, for right now, that's that's the main one. And of course, you've got issues with the Black Sea with Turkey having control over that over some treaty that was also in the 50s. And <laughs> you go way yeah. back in the stuff, it gets all muddled. But for Taiwan, I think I think to answer your question in a roundabout way, I think that's where it stops, though, because after, let's say, after they let's say, you know, a week from now, Russia actually does invade parts of the Donbass secede, those two people's republics that announced that they would be their own thing. Uh, back in 2015, and you had the Minsk agreement. Let's say those actually secede. Russia comes in, establishes those parts of the country, and they say, this is no longer part of Ukraine. This is part of Russia. We're reabsorbing these territories, right? right. After that, what's their claim? Like, they had a claim to, claim to Crimea. They had a claim to these two places because they stated there was some genocide going on of Russian-speaking peoples, which right, of is course. absolute garbage. That comes garbage. up today as well. Absolute garbage, but in any case... Um, Apart from that, like, what's their real claim here? I mean, granted, they could probably bulldoze Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania in like a couple days <laughs> if they really probably. wanted to. But um, I don't know, pr protracted conflict there. I think that's, again, I hate to bring it back to the economy, but I don't see how Russia would do well. And Mearsheimer, who you brought up earlier, that's kind of his take too, is if Russia gets involved in a land war in Ukraine and it gets drawn out, they're just going to tank even further. And instead of restoring Russia to this former glory of the Soviet, well, Soviet Union, Soviet Empire, um, it's just going to make it worse for the country overall. Right. Same way they got bogged down in East, in Central Asia and Afghanistan in the, uh, I think it was 70s, 80s. They ended up losing that one. Of course, we supplied the weapons on the other side. And then 20 <laughs> years later, fought against the same people who we classic, supplied the weapons classic. with. Classic. But yeah, there's Taiwan stuff. But I want to get away from these two hypotheticals. Everyone else is talking about this stuff, Steve. Okay, look, we are a unique show. Well, no, 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 we no. Let's, we're, we're, all, right, all right. Well, we're staying unique because, no, it, this plays into the question. Will we ever, ever see a major war involving, fuck, let's drop the first world countries. Will we ever see a major world war again? Let's go even bolder. And for those reasons that you mentioned, I think that's a great point. I mean, let's look at tomorrow. If China were to take Taiwan, they just went ahead and did. If Ukraine were to or uh, Russia were to take those two provinces within Ukraine, they split it like that, what would happen? 
I think that would, what would be, I mean, that would almost be like a perfect world because we wouldn't start a war over that. And if you look at China taking Taiwan, I'd have, I mean, this comes back to it. I don't know what United States policy is over Taiwan. If China were just to take it, which they could very easily, what would we do? I don't think we'd do anything. We're not in a position to do anything. And I think at that point, we sort of clean the slate and it's like, all right, all these beasts that we've had for the last 20, 30 years, those are, you know, those are sort of squash. Sure, there'll be other conflicts with regards to geography, but it's like, I don't think that would cause a world war. And in a lot of ways, I think it would probably be a good thing because we've taken those elements of conflict off the table for once. And maybe we can just continue to drive towards this world where economic stability and partnerships is the is the true way to move forward. Whether you're democratic or another form of government, if it, again, all about economic stability. Dude, if China took Taiwan, South Korea and Japan would freak out. The Philippines would freak out. These countries would go absolutely bonkers. Like... I, I don't think it would be good for the United States in any way if China ended up taking control of Taiwan. I really don't. Ukraine, that's a different conversation. That's sort of like, well, what are we willing to risk? And again, Russia's not a rising power. It's a decaying one, whereas China is a rising power. It's getting better year over year, whereas Russia is declining. And so if I'm looking at Taiwan, I think we need to do our best to defend it. Same way that, for example, why did we care when South Korea was invaded by North Korea? And the Chinese ended up backing the North Koreans. We ended up backing the South Koreans. Why did we care? Because we were trying to prop up to our allies, hey, the United States is actually going to do something and we are actually going to be present in this region. Right. Like All these security um, agreements and arrangements and promises that we've made to other countries in Southeast Asia, where did those all go where if... China were to invade Taiwan, and Taiwan would have advance notice of this. They've got thousands of spies on the mainland. They've got good sonar systems. They've got good air detection for uh, fighter jets. Dude, that would be a cool movie. I want to see a movie about a Taiwanese spy in China. That's, that would be a <laughs> sick movie. What it, dude? He'd just be sweeping a broom in some hallway or something. That would yeah, be the whole movie. Nothing would he, happen. Will he get caught? Won't he? He can never go back to Taiwan. How would you even get there? It's not like they have boats. I don't know. I'm just saying that would be a cool conflict. Someone, you know, maybe we'll write it. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Someone take it. I mean, you could get to Taiwan pretty easily, but okay. What is there a boat from? Uh... All right, never mind. We're getting. All right, all right, all right. we're getting. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> like if you really like for, for whatever reason, if China was like, all right, under no circumstance, no one can go to Taiwan ever. Then it's like okay, just go to Vietnam go to another country, and then just take a short hop flight, and you can land in Taipei. Super easy. There are probably flights right now. Yeah, but you, you need a that. fake passport. You think they're letting people What do you mean a, a Chinese, fake passport? Oh, okay, okay. think with a Chinese visa, you're getting into Taiwan? I, yeah. I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway. <laughs> you're already in Taiwan. All right, anyway. Um, no, that's, that's fair enough. But um, aside from that, all right, Steve, bring, <laughs> bring us back here, because I've gone on a soft track. No, so... I, what I was saying is your point then that we will not see. All right, let's get to it. Yes or no? Based on what you've been saying, are you saying that we will never see a major war again involving first world countries, the modern world today? I think a major war is inevitable. I think it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be a world war, but I think there's going to be a major world involving first world countries at some point down the line. Now, I don't know what the time frame is. I don't know if it's going to be 100 years. Well, I don't do you know think, if it's going to well, be no, no, 200 no, years. Sure. I mean, all right. Maybe in, inev inevitably within 200 years, who knows what the world will look like? That's sure. But let's just look at the next century. Based on everything that's happening today, for the next 100 years, do you think there's a strong likelihood that we would see a war similar to World War II again? Over the next 30, 40, 50, 
No. Over the next 100, 100%, dude. I really do think, like, as much as I want to kind of, there are all these counterfactuals and all of these counterpoints to balance of power theory, convergence theory, the trade-based theories, all this good stuff. I think when you when you just look at it, the frequency of war, I don't think it's a thing of the past. I don't think it's just gone away totally. I think nuclear weapons certainly, you know, plays a role. And I think increased trade, democratic ties, cultural ties, the rest of it. I think those are definitely d- deterrents to war. However, I'm sure something dumb will happen within 100 years where everyone starts rushing to get involved in a conflict. Strange alliances are going to be made and there's going to be a big war again. When we say the first, for example, major powers of the first world, like, is there going to be a war between involving, I don't know, you could say like India, China, Pakistan, (laughs) whatever. Let's just say something (laughs) happens over there. I mean, probably not as likely as, let's say, what is it? Heart of Darkness, uh, Central or Democratic Republic of the Congo, where millions of people have died over the past couple decades. Was there going to be another war over there as, let's say, all these countries end up shifting to renewable energy and they decide, hey, for all of our autonomous cars and our electric vehicles and all this stuff, we need these minerals. And the only place right. to get some of these minerals like coltan and the rest of it that we use for smartphones, I guess cobalt is the more popular one, it mostly comes to the DRC. So would there be a war over there of all these different, you know, corporations, (laughs) kind of like a banana republic type situation where would you classify that as a war? Um, But uh, probably not in terms of first world countries. But um, I I think there would be a major one just just by the numbers. Because again, going back to World War One, era of prosperity, decades where nothing happened between the major powers. Everyone was at peace. Everyone was getting along with each other. And then all this stuff happened and they were like, oh. You know what? Screw all of the past couple of decades. We're going to war in two months, baby. Let's do it. Yeah, but well, okay. I mean, in the specific, I mean, there Hitler had a clear agenda, and he that, wanted no. And World he War wanted war. No, we're, you're talking about Hitler World was World War Two. I'm talking I about was, World War One. I know he's yeah. World War Two. Okay, okay. I, I mean, he fought in World War One. I. I thought. <laughs> anyway. All right, fair enough. I was thinking World War Two, but in any event. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I look back at history, oh, a, a huge fan of history. And it, again, it's always, you know, if you look back to history, you'll, you can really see what the future is going to be. And yeah, are we going to have another war? It's inevitable. It's human nature. We're going to have a big war. That's good. It'll be like World War One again in terms of uh, ge- geographical ba- borders are being redrawn. It'll be crazy when we get there. And again, you have the element of nukes. I mean, it's going to be bad if we get to something like that. Hopefully not within our lives, but within... Okay, so sure. But I'm talking about... Okay, so within the next 50 years, though, you, you don't see a, a likelihood of that happening. At least um, in terms of a really large-scale conflict involving multiple major powers, I don't think that's the case. Unless you count something like NATO intervention in something, which, for example, would you call the war in the Yugoslavia a uh, big world war because NATO, which was comprised of the United States, United Kingdom, France, like all these other countries right. sent peacekeeping forces and then bombed the hell out of Yugoslavia under U.S. leadership with Clinton. Was Is that constituting like a world war? I don't think so. A major yeah, war, I think it does in, in some cases. And granted, that was for different reasons. They were like, oh, we are trying to prevent an actual genocide, not what Putin is saying in this case, but actually people were dying <laughs> in, in pretty big numbers. Um, but... Yeah, I look, I don't know. In fact, oh, geez. I think, well, all right, reading all this stuff, you know, the international wonks, they don't know anything domestically. They know a little bit, but they don't know a lot. And they always say, oh, 
the big the big threat is what's happening in terms of domestic instability in the United States. You know, we're so divided these days. You know, chances are the United States, you know, could end up declining on that front alone, just because we are turning into such a mess of a country internally with our politics. Sure. Versus somewhere where, like China, where you know we can criticize it all day and night for its command and control style version of autocracy and one party system, but people are in line for one of the first times in Chinese history. <laughs> they had yeah, well, now, you're starting, this, well yeah. now you're starting to get at what the reigning political ideology is going to be. Is it going to be that, like our first episode, is democracy failing? Is that, you know, the decline of the United States going to lead to the decline of democracy around the world? And oh. we'll see more models like China taken up because, as you said, for the first time in China's thousand year history, we finally have a period of great Stability and prosperity. All right. Well, they have like five thousand years of history, Steve. Not just I said thousands. thousands. I said oh, thousands. Oh, thousands. Okay, my bad. I only heard the one D. I, I didn't hear the S. No, there um, wouldn't be two the Ds in that case either, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look. Um, one of the things that I like about Beckley's book um, is that it frames a lot of these power competitions in terms of costs. So not just okay, how many troops are on one side versus how many troops are on the other, but actually, what are the security costs going on inside of a country? So, for example, China very big country. And it, it wasn't China back then. It was Qing dynasty and the other dynasties, imperial China. Um, but the security costs with all the warlords, all these internal rebellions, all this stuff. For example, when the British invaded during the Opium Wars and launched a war against China, China barely committed any troops whatsoever. China had like 800,000 soldiers at the time. Britain had like 7,000 sailors. And granted, Britain had some you know pretty good ships and good guns and the rest of it. But China had hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And none of them came anywhere close to the conflict because there was all this internal strife and China was spending dumb amounts of money on just policing its internal politics and all these different rebellions that would break up. And of course, you had the biggest civil war in history, the Taiping Rebellion, where this guy came across. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm the uh, brother of Jesus. And, uh, (laughs) you know, we should go to war. So uh, 30 to 40 million people died uh, because someone in the 1850s thought they were uh, the brother of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Could happen here. But uh, it could happen here. Um, Poor Joseph Smith. But in any case, um, I think one thing that China doesn't have to deal with nowadays is its security costs aren't as high. Sure, some of its social costs are going to be very high in the coming decades as its population rapidly ages as you come to have hundreds of millions of Chinese people who are older and are relying on social welfare programs. Meanwhile, the population has very bad issues when it comes to how many men it has versus women, because of course you had all that one child policy. You had female infanticide where, you know, families wanted a a boy instead of a girl. So when a girl was born, they would just murder the newborn girl and then try to try for a boy. But they've got all these demographic issues and, but I'm not here to rag on China. When you ask, are we going to go to war with each other? I think, you know, Europe keeps trying to say that they're important again. We don't think they are, frankly. Right now, the United States foreign policy is all about a pivot to Asia. That's where what it's all about. You know, Africa, eh, I, I wish them the best, um, but not a whole lot is going on. Not there a focus next, yet. Not a couple decades. Yeah, not really a focus yet, unless... All of a sudden, there becomes a scramble for rare earth minerals. In which case, I, you know, we'll see yeah. how that plans out. And well, then South, I, uh, go ahead. No, well, I'll say, you know, I, I mean, I generally, I mean, I agree. W- will we ever see a major war again? 
Yes, it's it's inevitable for for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned. What's the next thirty to fifty years? Let's narrow it down. Are going to look like? I think again, it's going to be a lot of proxy wars. We look at a continent like Africa. I think a big thing there again, it's going to turn into forget Russia. I really don't know what's going to happen with Russia. I think they've already taken a backseat to China. We don't, as you mentioned, we're not really concerned with Europe. Let Europe deal with Russia. That'll be a whole thing of its own. For us, it's it's China. And if we look at a continent like Africa, where China has invested so much in trying to modernize those countries and really lay the groundwork for what we did within Europe coming out of World War II, which was propping it up, putting a lot of American technologies in there, really helping them scale. And then you, you look at us today with our intellectual property, the you know, the superiority that we have around the world, the great companies we have, China's trying to reproduce that in Africa. And South and, America. That's and true. South America. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, what I think in the next 30, 50 years, we will see a conflict there. You mentioned the Congo. I think that's a great state to analyze. And I think it will be United States versus China conflict there, whether that's going to be the two sides propping up governments and, and or rebels there and it's going to war like that. I don't know. We have, like you mentioned, the corporations too. I think whatever that next, I think the next 30 to 50 years, any conflict that we see is going to involve these corporations. You think it's just going to become, you know, the, the United States versus China? I think we will. And this is sort of going into like the 80s and like the cyber movies where like, oh, this, in, in 100 years, it's going to be the corporations that own the world. I think there's going to be a degree of that because we look at how much power these companies do have politically over they've gained over the last 30 years alone. I think that's going to be a major theme we see through the next 30 to 50 years. How do we control these large companies? And then what does international conflict look like then? Well, I disagree with you there. I think if we look at some of the wars, for example, I mentioned the Opium Wars uh, with uh, Great Britain and France got involved too in Germany and the rest of it in in China, Qing Dynasty, in the 1830s through 40s and 50s, both the First and Second Opium Wars. That was started because British commercial traders were like, hey, we want to sell our opium into China. And China was like, no, we're declaring a war on drugs. You can't do that here. And Britain was like, Guys, come on. We got to get some people from the Royal Navy to back us up, okay? We're, we're a British corporation. We, we want to sell our stuff over here. We want to sell our smack to the Chinese. Made a lot of money. Yeah. And then the British get involved. They're like, yeah, you know what? You should accept our opium. Take it. <laughs> and I think that's part of it. And the United States has done this in the past, as have others, where your corporations, even Chinese fishing vessels, let's say in the Philippines, whatever, a lot of the times um, these sort of corporate even back to the mercantilist days and pirates and the rest of it, it's like corporations and trade and merchants, they sort of get their foot in the door. And then if something really bad happens to them, they go crying back to their national government. And that's where the real risk of a war is. I don't think it's as much as like, oh, Pepsi had, you know, a bunch of submarines because Russia traded them (laughs) or the Soviets traded Pepsi. Well, it could be like, you know, know, they became the third largest. It could be another Chiquita banana incident. Who knows? Uh, that's true with the Banana Republic. No, but, but that no, I, I no, I you have a good you. point too. No, about I'm the just, I'm, I'm corporations. just, I mean, I am just throwing that out there again. It's sort of just to you know entertain me for a second there, but yeah, it will of course be between you know the sort of the the political bodies behind but, them. All right, Steve, let me ask you this because I think this is a good question to close on. Um, if we went ahead and did what Trump said we should do a couple of years ago and say NATO is outdated, we should disband it, get rid of it, we're contributing way too much money as a check against this threat. Again, it was formed in response to the Soviet Union as a balancing coalition around them. That threat no longer exists. Russia is much less of a threat. We should just disband, get rid of it. It's gone. If NATO actually were to be disbanded, do you think Europe would go to war with itself once again, like they've done throughout history? Or do you think this time it would be different? Wow, that's a great question. 
The cl- by the way, for the listeners, that's the classic response you want to give when you're fishing for more time to think. <laughs> I tried to frame it out long and good so that Steve had a couple of seconds to think about it because I just popped this out of nowhere. But, you know, if anyone asks you a question, ever, oh, a great question, excellent question, especially, hey, if you're uh, like Vlad, Vladdy boy from what was it? It was Robin Hood during the Game GameStop congressional hearings. He's like, you know, Congressman, great question. When I grew up as a young boy in Eastern <laughs> Europe, and he just fished for time that way. So, Steve, I fish for time on your end now. What's your answer to the NATO question if it goes away? I think I see two scenarios. One, they, there, there is a war. I think then the Russia threat there will push these countries to their limits. I think, the, I think what's going to be the catalyst for that war is going to be trying to get all of the European states to agree on how to handle the Russian threat. And I think that's what's going to break them. I think the other hand is then, so you've got that one scenario, which is a divided Europe, and then you, and conflict with Russia inevitably will come, and we'll see lines drawn. It'll be a mess. The other side is, will Europe sort of unify around that Russian threat and move on without the United States leadership and sort of form maintain the EU? And take more of a democratic approach where each each of the states ultimately has a say. And it's sort of like a model, you know, a United States model in a sense. Again, that's grouped around the, the threat of Russia. How do we handle that? Is it better to unify and, and find a way to do that and then move forward? So, again, I guess either of, t- either of those two ways. I think the likelihood is it's, frankly, it'll probably go more towards the other, other side. Where I think finding that unified front is going to be very difficult historically. And, it, and, it'll, and it'll lead to war, again, because the United States is pivoting, as you mentioned, to Asia. Well, some of the um, CIA analysts back in the 80s and others, you know, we can even look at the 90s. And I forget who the VP was for Bush, for whatever reason. The guy who shot the the other guy on the hunting trip. What was his name? Oh, Dick Cheney? Um, Dick Cheney, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. So Dick <laughs> Cheney and a bunch of other people put out this white paper in the 90s that was like, hey, actually, it's not China. It's Germany and Japan that are going to be the big threats in the future because they have been in the past they're you know doing pretty well today they'll come back but i want to focus on i guess germany here in in a sense because prior to great britain or the united kingdom leaving the european union through brexit britain accounted for a quarter of eu defense spending and half of eu military research and development spending now the eu has this common security and defense policy right which if you go to the website the homepage looks like it has a, a fishing ship from straight out of Jaws. Like, this does not look like a military ship in any way. And, of course, Germany has all this collective guilt over World War II and the rest of it where they're really reticent. And, of course, the Greens are big. The I think it's the Social Democrats. And then whoever ended up uh, inheriting you know, Merkel's kind of empire. I forget what the C- if the CDU has merged into anything else. I'm not fresh on my German politics, but... I do know, for example, like the Greens want, they want peace. Like they don't want to go to war with anyone. They're just like, oh, we'll do our, you know, environmental stuff. And that's our whole thing. Peace, love, enjoy. They're the hippies. They're the hippies, yeah. Maybe not so much, but eh, kind of the hippies. But like they don't want war. Also, they're, like you were saying, they're very reliant on Russia for uh, natural gas, natural gas exports. Um, But I mean, that was kind of how Americans were thinking about it in the future if Europe starts remilitarizing again, and now France, for example, in the European Union, it's all held together by Germany and France. And so, right. you know, France, not as reliant on all the energy stuff because they've got loads of nuclear power. 
Germany, on the other hand, is pretty reliant. And there's been some tensions there where the rest of the EU says, oh, we want more nuclear power. And Germany says, no, we don't. <laughs> don't do this. Yeah. And so there's, of course, tension there. But I think, for example, if the United States were to completely withdraw, um, Russia continues on its usual antics. Do you think the EU is going to actually take it very it seriously for once to invest in defense spending and then have one big army that then kind of might disintegrate in the future? Or do you think they would kind of stick together? Because now it's the EU. They're all Europe. They're all friends with each other. Kumbaya. We all hug. We're all one. We're separate nations, but we're the same system and we all love each other. European commission, everyone. No, that's not going to happen. I mean, even look at what happened today in Ukraine. Germany did not want to send any munitions, any arms, really donate, contribute any money hey, they militarily. They donated a field hospital. It donated a field hospital, but again, nothing militarily. And maybe it 5, goes 5,000 helmets. <laughs> oh, that's going to go a long way. And maybe that just goes back to Germany really taking the stance that we don't want to be involved in any wars whatsoever. Our history is really bad. This is not going to go well for us. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's because of that. But you know, to your point, I don't know. I don't think that between France and Germany, they're going to be able to come to any any unilateral decision, any joint decision there. And consequently, the EU is going to split. I mean, we sort of, I mean, that was the whole thing with Brexit, though. Like, is that going to cause the collapse of the EU? And, and granted, the EU has sort of remained. Again, is that propped up by the United States, though? I think to a large part, Yes. Well, for dis- defense spending, it's propped up by the United States, but all the Marshall just, Plan stuff, which, by right. the way, just wanted to contrast that to what China's doing in Africa right now, it, it's not the same thing as a Marshall Plan. For example, when the United States gave a bunch of money to Europe, 90% of it was grants, did not expect to be repaid. When China gives out a loan, it's you're either repaying this or we're going to seize control of, for example, we big, build a big port. Okay, we're going to have more rights to this than than you, the sovereign state who <laughs> just constructed this and owns this thing, right? But yeah, well, that was a quick aside. But back to France and Germany, and I guess the EU. You were saying Brexit, you know, is going to start the sort of domino effect where other countries are going to try to leave the EU. Do you think it's a sinking ship, really? Well, all right. So today, France and Germany are really the two biggest states within the EU that command always the have most. Been, yeah. Always have been, right? command the most economic superiority militarily as well. England was the third. If not, England was probably the most financially successful of the three states prior to Brexit. I mean, the English economy has been fantastic for a while. I mean, look at the we look at the the price of the pound previous prior to Brexit. I mean, it was it was an economic power. I mean, just look at the the markets coming into England today. So I think with England now gone, and let's look at this. Has England and France ever once gotten together over their history? No. The English hate the French, and the French hate the English. What are you talking about? They they had some coalitions together, well, against the Germans, but they, against they, the Germans. Yeah. So I mean, you look at the it's a mess. There's no way that that's going to end well. So I, I mean, I guess the only thing is I don't know what is the relationship between Germany and France. From what you said, it sounds it's strained. I'm sure. Once the United States well, over energy policy, over energy policy, but even like with the example with Ukraine, with with Germany not wanting to donate, would Germany commit then to militarizing if the United States left? Russia becomes the primary threat. What's the, I don't think they would Europe have a choice. Look? I think they would have to start. So, 
I guess that then depends on what Russia's next move then. Does Russia take things up and does Russia try to annex more of take, I guess, I mean, that would lend itself to a, a world war quote. Wouldn't that be the ultimate thing? We pivot out, we go to Asia, and before we even get to deal with China, Europe goes into another world war with Russia. <laughs> oh my God. That's honestly like a nightmare scenario in a sense. Because again, like no one thinks anything is going to happen in Europe. Right. It's seen as this very boring part of the world where, yeah, you know, for a long time people were killing each other left and right, but nowadays, it's all peaceful and happy yeah. and everyone has these great social welfare programs and the citizens like, for example, like if, if you ask like the average person throughout the world, where would you like to move? I guarantee most people, I don't have any polling to back this up, but I guarantee the average person would say they'd rather move to the European Union, specifically France or Germany, than the United States, which oh, is yeah. a big change from how it was in the past a couple decades or so. Yeah, 100%. 100%. They're I mean, for all those, those social seems reasons. better. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean... It does seem very peaceful. I mean, again, I guess you're probably not thinking what's the political situation if you're a refugee thinking, where am I going to go? So again, well, maybe No, I'm not just, talking about refugees. I'm just talking about people in general. Like if you wanted to emigrate to another part of the right, world, sure. I where guess would I you want to go? And it's, you <laughs> instantly just, go to the refugee. I, okay, I, mean, I, I instantly go to, I think Europe, I think the refugees. I mean, that was part of the strain. You know, uh, the UK is like, oh my God, we've got we've got so many refugees we're taking That's on. True. It's like, you, you're really not. <laughs> like Germany is doing all the lifting here. <laughs> you're not even doing anything, United Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, not to belittle the UK, I guess, but I, that really is sad. It's like you meant a lot in the world and then you're just like, oh, Brexit, oh, we're going to be great. We've got, you already had your sovereignty in the first place. You weren't being that bullied around. Okay. It wasn't that big of an issue. And this goes back to Thatcher and before then where, you know, Britain has always been very, they're an island and they're not connected to the European mainland by, by any sort of landmass. And so they've always been suspicious of getting more involved in it, especially right with the, the French and the Germans. And now, of course, you know, Ireland, Ireland would love to stay in the EU. They're like, I mean, they're their own country, obviously, but I don't know what's going to happen with Northern Ireland, which again, is something we always forget about. We always gloss it over. Like, nowadays, we're not growing up with this, but back in the yeah. 90s and previous to that, you know, there were all these terrorist attacks. There were all these, you know, well, issues. Well, now it's relatively Northern peaceful. Ireland. We just, you know, yeah, there's Bloody Ireland, there's Sunday. Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Not no, just that's... in Selma, that was also in Northern Ireland, Bloody Sunday. <laughs> No, very true. Yeah. I don't know. And I think, you know, again, it would go back really what we'd be looking at then, say there was a conflict with Russia. It would be sort of World War II before the United States got involved. Would England, I mean, England was sort of, I mean, France crumbled almost immediately. So then it was really England backing up Spain, what remained of Europe in that war for the first two years almost until the United States really got involved in Europe on the European front. First and, in Africa, I think, then into Europe. Eventually. And the Soviets started pushing in. And then the Soviets started coming yep. in, right? Um, and maybe that would bring us back. But yeah, I don't know. I think, again, it comes to the question is, that's what it is. Is is Will Europe be able to unify and govern themselves without the United States there as this figure to sort of prop them up? Well, really, it's kind of like, it's kind of like daddy. And they're like all, you know, it's like, <laughs> what's, all right, no, that was a bad one. What's, what's, oh, what's, what's the rat in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? We're like Professor the rat. Splinter. Yeah, we're like the rat. Oh my and gosh. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are Europe. That's <laughs> that's what this is. And once we're gone, are they going to be able to maintain and proceed as a, a, go forward? I don't know. That's going to be the the question. If they well, can, they would then be. I think then we would see you know the United States, China, Europe, completely on its own for once, and then Russia wherever they sort of settle. Well, let's be real about it. Take any historical, cultural, religious ties. Throw that all that. Take take all of Samuel P. Huntington's, you know, seven civilizations clash. 
throw that all out the window. And if you just look at why, why do we care so much about Europe? That's because we're the center of the universe for so of long course. was in Western Europe, right? And then what happens? Okay, the Soviets, they're now the dominant power after World War II. And so we're like, oh, crap, if there's going to be a war, it's going to be in, in Europe. We got to really care about Europe. And then, of course, there's no war in Europe. <laughs> we just had went to war all over the rest of the world. Yeah, we had to find um, something else to do. But I, I think that's that's the big thing. Again, it was it was this bargain. That was the agreement that the United States would provide security backing and monetary aid and food aid and other forms of aid. And in response, we would get Western Europe, you know, re-mechanized and developed. And now they're really booming, flourishing economies. Now, they were doing pretty well in the first place. And, of course, they had to give up all their colonial possessions along the way across the first two world wars. Um, but I think they're doing very well economically. And at this point, it's like, all right, well, you've got all this money to burn. And now we don't have this big Soviet threat. So... If, for example, if Russia were to not do any of this stuff in Ukraine, <laughs> I think that Europe would have very low chance of conflict. I really do. Yeah, I don't oh, think very course. much would happen. I think they would be like, oh, this is actually working out really well. We're not killing each other over random stuff anymore. You know, we've got these great trading alliances. Europe is leading the world in a lot of environmental, technological, other, other realms. And so Europe is doing really well. But then now with Russia acting up again, if the United States were to all of a sudden withdraw and say, like, oh, actually, we don't care about any of this stuff, take away how that would look at how that would reflect on the United States. But if we weren't there, then I think Europe would have to mil have to militarize. Oh, what yeah, other choice would they would. have with Russia right on their uh, border? Right. Yeah, they would have to keep the threat in check. And to your point, they've done very well. I think, again, that's why, in a sense, you know, it's time to let baby bird fly and we got to just cut. Cut the strings on on Europe, the EU. No, but I don't want that, Steve. <laughs> I don't want there to be these wars in Europe. <laughs> I don't want it to remilitarize. Well, that's, well, that's assuming that, that that would lead to a conflict, an armed I conflict. I think so. Well, again, I think, in a, at least at Europe, the best case scenario, like you said, is let's just give Russia those provinces that it wants. We'll leave Eastern Europe, Ukraine, on its own. I think as Mershmer says, it needs to be this buffer state. That's the only way we're going to see stability within... A neutral state, yeah. A neutral state. We're going to see... Well, it would be a buffer state. A buffer state. You're right. Yeah. NATO, but EU now in Oh, Russia. the Carpathian Mountains. Oh, the big <laughs> range. Yeah. Go ahead. And it, it, it would need that. So, I mean, maybe we'll see that's how this whole conflict will end. Um, but, you know, the United States will still be remained, remain involved via NATO in Europe for, I think, the foreseeable future. It's really until... We get a good stance on how we're going to handle the the Asian threat. Maybe we'll be an Asian EU that will sort of come in and and I mean you probably know if there's already an agreement or a partnership like that similar to NATO within within the within the Pacific. Well, there's AUKUS with the UK, United States, Australia, but that's not really fully fully Asian, and they do have their own security partnerships. But a lot of it, I think, is bilateral at this point between the United States, other countries, countries within. For example, like. South Korea does not love Japan, okay? Japan came in, like, not even 100 years ago. They were like, actually, Korean shouldn't be a language anymore. We're going <laughs> to stop all of this stuff. And they yeah. kind of forced, because, you know, China had control of the Korean peninsula. And then Japan comes in and says, all right, well, we beat China in a war. China, give us Korea. And they go to Korea, and they're like, all right, Korea, you guys shouldn't really exist. You're just going to be a vassal state of Japan. We're going to tell you what's up. Get rid of your language. Get rid of your culture. We're yeah. going to run the show. And then 15 years later or 20 years later, they get kicked out. So it's like, well, you know, I'm sure they don't love each other. Yeah. <laughs> There's not all this, you know, warmth between them. But 
Yeah, what was it? I mean, they've always been at conflict. I mean, Japan and Korea. What was there? I remember in, in an Asian history class, there was this one battle between or war between Korea and Japan. And I think it was the Japanese who ended up losing it because like all their boats got caught in a storm off the oh coast of like Korea. <laughs> and I think they couldn't get their, their samurai off or the horses off. Anyway, it was a massacre. I think Korea ended up winning that one. But to your point, always a lot of conflict there. Um, but always again, the so, bad seas. Always the bad seas. So maybe the United States will need to, I mean, again, then it comes down to Taiwan. I guess that's kind of the whole, we're seeing a very similar situation prop up, crop up in in the South China Sea as to what we're seeing in Europe right now. And like everyone's saying, you know, what the next 30 to 50 years, again, I'm sort of just tying that into our time frame here. It's going to be about Asia and it's going to be that the United States shifting over there and sort of taking that, that father figure in the, in the Pacific um, against China. Yeah. To protect our commercial yeah. interests. And, and I mean, also honestly, to, let, you yep, know, to, to sort of tie this thing to it, the way I think all this is going to pan out, and this is yeah. before your next, this mega war that you, you predicted will I'll happen in a hundred years. Um, I think like you mentioned before, China's biggest sort of threat in a way is itself because of its aging population. You look at the health of the Chinese population. I would imagine it's, I don't know if they have public health. I mean, it's maybe some degree because it's communist. <laughs> they, have, they have doctors, Steve. No, I'm not saying they don't have doctors, but I'm saying if you look at the health, like, I don't know what this is because I don't get a lot of Chinese, but you know, like within the United States, it's all about, you know, health, how can we improve? You know, you look at China where so much of their population is involved in manufacturing, they're, you know, in poverty or they're not, you know, I don't know how big the middle class is there, but I would assume that there's a large part of the Chinese population that is at that poverty line of a little above. And I just think, so they're contending with the aging population, the lack of men, to continue the population growth that they would need. The lack and of I think women. The lack of women, excuse me. Um, and then I think you have a, a large part of their population that health-wise is not going to live as long as we're going to see the comparable demographic in the United States live to be. Yeah, I mean... And I, I think, think to get just to, to end it, I think that's going to what, what's going to be their downfall. And is the only way that the United States is going to sort of win this next ideological war against China of, of the 21st century is China's sort of... All that emphasis on growing so quickly is going to have taken a toll on the country and it's going to bring them down. That's a very good point to end on. I will say for China, it does seem like, for example, some of the environmental stuff that they talk about, it seems to be an imperative for a lot of them because drinking water, uh, arable land, a lot of that stuff, not great in China right now. Uh, for example, China's 240 million farmers struggle to feed even themselves because their supplies of water and land are dwindling due to pollution and overuse. Um, that's the statistics from, uh, whatchamacallit, Beckley's book, which again was published three years ago. So still pretty pretty recent and yeah. relevant. And I mean, they've had some growing pains. And I think once the environmental movement really gets in full swing, like China doesn't have many environmental regulations. In fact, if you look at some of how like these international master's programs in environmental stuff, how it's framed, it's like, oh, you know, the, the European Union, the United States, these other countries, they have environmental laws, okay? You're going to school to study, all right, how can we build on this and improve it? China doesn't really have a lot of these fundamental <laughs> environmental laws. Sure, they've got some, but for example, like air pollution is still a massive, massive issue. Oh, yeah. As, same thing in India and other places, but right. my, oh my goodness, we didn't even touch we on didn't India. Even, I just, we didn't you, touch. Oh my God, that's uh, going to be a whole other When you episode. look at the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. The BRICS, oh my God. We threw, we threw out half the BRICS. We were like, oh, we only need <laughs> this much to build on our episode. But um, to stop us from rambling any further, mostly myself, uh, let's cut it here. 
If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> if you have a bone to pick with either of us, please do. Please tell me that there will not be a major war in the next 100 years. I know that that's such a broad category so as to not really mean anything, not specific at all. <laughs> Nick's taking the easy way out. But as the United States international power starts to, whether it's soft power, Joseph Nye, the liberal ideas or neoliberal ideas around soft power, or our hard power, as those start to decline in relative terms, I think, you know, you get back to the age of Mershamir and great power politics and then it's all off the table, baby. I don't care all how democratic you are, dude. There's going to be a war, which yeah. would actually be very sad. But we'll be dead by then, so whatever. We yeah, that's the hope. still be cheery about it. <laughs> Nick, well, I've, uh, this has been a pleasure, a fantastic conversation. Um, we'll see how we pick this up again. I'm sure there'll be a part two at some point. Maybe it'll be when this Ukrainian conflict sort of ends. Who knows? That's the hottest thing going around in the news right now. We'll see what goes on the next couple of weeks. But... Uh, and for any reason, if anyone listens to this far in the future, uh, please don't start another war. That that would be great. I very much like being able to sit here, uh, sipping on my water. Steve sipping on his alcoholic beverage or whatever he's I'm consuming. Drinking tea today. This okay, is a tea-based tea. right. conversation. Oh, the back to the British and uh, the tea. I I see. Okay, it getting, is my roots. roots. Ah, Maybe that's it doesn't fair. bode well for. For this episode, I don't know. I was going to say there was a war over some of that tea. There was Steve. a war over this tea. Maybe this will, it's going to end in conflict. And there could be a war on water thing. too. Like will I'm drinking. Ever, Look at that. Look that's that. going to be the next one. Will we ever see a major war? It'll be the war on water. That's for sure. Water wars, just like the movie. Anyway, we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. You can find us on Twitter at Steve. DCMB pod. Join the conversation there.